We're aiming to see more clearly how our story, the story of our little church, fits into God's bigger story. And God does have a bigger story. You you know that, right? This is not it's not just all these random little churches and random little lives kind of just existing for a period and then and then things going. No, there's a bigger story. And and we see God's bigger story unfolding throughout the pages of scripture and we're part of that story. And so even as we look in the scriptures in a passage like this today, the Bible is we got to remember the Bible's not a collection of just random, isolated, standalone, moralistic, religious tales. That's not what scriptures are. The Bible is a story. It's one unified story. It has a beginning and it's moving toward an end. And, and, and so we, we fit into that story. We're part of that, that meta-narrative that is, that is God's story. His eternal purpose that He's accomplishing in, in this world. And here's the story. It's the story of, of God who is on mission to redeem and to reconcile the people that he made for his own glory. That's, that's, the, big, that's the big story. It's not, it's not a story primarily about us. It's, it's about God. And in, so every, every episode in, in the scriptures, it's not about people. Uh, David and Goliath, it's not about David's faith. And Jehoshaphat, it's not about him here. It's about God, what he's doing. And so it, it really centers on, and we get specific, it's about Jesus and what, and what He's done and is doing to, to bring dead enemies of God into lasting and loving relationship with God. That's, that's the big story. And we're part of that. And so one of, the, one of the key truths we see throughout Scripture that helps frame this big story that God has written in His writing is, is this truth. And we've got to get this. It's that we can't, but God can we can't, but God can. We see this throughout the Bible. Our inability, God's ability. Our weakness, God's strength. We can't, God is able. And, and so the story is not about us meeting God halfway. It's like we're trying to search and find our way to God and God is looking for us and somewhere in the middle or maybe God goes most of the way. We just go a little bit of the way because we're not as big as he is. But somehow we, we kind of we meet up with God somewhere in the middle. That is not it. The, the story is God, who this holy, holy God that we've sang about this morning, moving towards sinful mankind in love. And again, the focal point of the story is God sending His Son Jesus into this world to save sinners through His death and resurrection. It's God, the movement is God to man. And, and so, it, what that, and, and if you want exhibit A of that, it's, it's this person right here, and it's you. I couldn't do anything to save myself. God did it. It's not like I, I did my part and God did the rest and made up the difference. No. It's a gift from God. Salvation is of the Lord. So we know that on the micro level, but we see it on the macro level throughout Scripture. And this we can't, God can theme runs throughout the Bible. And and I am drawn to those passages, particularly in the Old Testament, those episodes where where that, that really highlight this. And there are a bunch of them. And this is one of them today in Second Chronicles 20. This is a chapter I've wanted to preach for, for several years now. And, and as you know, many of you know, this is the chapter from which our, our church name comes. Um, and, 
And if you're new here and you've ever wondered why we're called Baraka Bible Church, this is the, this is the passage. Second Chronicles 20 verse 26 is where that word Baraka comes from. So verse 26, on the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Baraka, for there they blessed the Lord. Uh, Baraka, blessing, the valley of blessing. That's a good word. That's a good name. God's people blessing the Lord after they've seen God work powerfully on their behalf. That sounds like what the church should be doing, isn't it? I mean, God has worked, and he's, he's, as Van was saying, He's worked and adopted us as His own. He's, he's brought salvation to us and made us into one body, and we, so we stand and we bless the Lord. And, and this is what we see. But that's a very beautiful verse, but you, we're going to see this morning, it's in a very bloody context. It's a battlefield. Just a few verses earlier, you look back up in verse 24 and we read, They looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. And so life in the valley of blessing is life lived in the battlefield. There's, there's a war being fought. And, and how, how does God want His people to wage that war? That's what we're going to see this morning in this passage. And so... Just two points this morning. The first one is this. We wage war with weakness. And then we'll see in a moment, we wage war with worship. With weakness and worship. We'll see these two truths unfold in this scene. And then we're going to apply it to our local church context and see how our story fits into God's bigger story. And so the date of this passage here is we're looking. It's about 850 B.C. Place, Jerusalem. The person, Jehoshaphat. And so a little bit about Jehoshaphat. He, a few generations before he was born, you remember the, the, all the twelve tribes of Israel made up this one great nation that God had planted in the promised land. But David's son, King Solomon, failed to honor and obey and remain faithful to God. And so the kingdom was divided and, and Israel to the north, Judah to the south, and, and Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, became the first king of the south of Judah. And, and then his son, Abijah, ruled after him. And then his son after them, Asa, and then Jehoshaphat. And so that's where we, that's where we see in this, in this lineage. And so Jehoshaphat was one of, a faith, one of a handful of good and godly kings of Judah. There were a few others, and, and they, and they were, but most were faithless, faithless and wicked. Now, so Asa, Jehoshaphat's father, was also a righteous king, but, but there was, there was something, I think, that Jehoshaphat saw in, in, in his father, and during his reign, his father Asa's reign, that he probably never forgot. There was a moment, and, and I suspect, again, he never, never got over this. Early in his reign, King Asa commanded God's people to put away their idols, to trust the Lord alone, to seek the Lord, and because of that, God granted tremendous peace in the land of Judah. And so Asa told his people in Second Chronicles 14.7, you don't need to turn there, but just listen. He says to the people, the land is still ours. Why? Because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought Him and He has given us peace on every side. And so during Asa's reign then, there were cities, fortified cities that were built up and the army was strengthened and, and the land was fruitful and everything's going great. But then the king of both Ethiopia comes against Judah with this enormous army. A million foot soldiers, 300 chariots, and, 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 and Esau's army is just greatly outnumbered. They don't stand a chance. 
And so Asa cries out to God with this tremendous cry of of absolute desperation and and faith and confidence in the Lord. And you see it in verse 11 of chapter 14. O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you and in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. And God answered his prayer. And the Lord miraculously struck the Ethiopians so that they were sent fleeing from Judah before Asa's army. And it was a great victory for the Lord and for the people who trusted in the Lord. And so that's part of Jehoshaphat's background. And I don't doubt that Asa told that story over and over over again as Jehoshaphat grew up and as he became king. We, we, We couldn't do it, but God could and he did. This, this, this God coming through at a very desperate time. So Jehoshaphat becomes king. He reigns for many years over Judah. And he has this prosperous reign. And everything's going great. But then he, like his father, is faced with this desperate situation. And, and, and one day, out of nowhere, we read this just a moment ago, Jehoshaphat's whole world is shaken when his intelligence sources come running to him and with terrible news. We saw it in verse 2. A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is in Gedi. So, so there's this massive enemy coalition that's formed against Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah. There's a lot of bad blood between these two groups of people, uh, between these groups of people and in this mix. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 19, really. The, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they were, those people groups came from uh, and originated from that incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And so there's, this is a long history. And, but yet when God brought the people of Israel into the promised land, he specifically told them they, they were to leave Moab and Ammon and Edom alone. And now, though, these hostile nations who have been shown mercy by God are are ready to attack God's people. And so this, this vast army just kind of sneaks around the southern edge of the Dead Sea, and now they're just one day's journey away. And you can throw that map up there real quick, Luke, just to give you some idea of what's transpired here. And so Jehoshaphat's life, the kingdom, it's all on the brink of total annihilation. You, you have to see that that's the scenario. This isn't just like a schoolyard bully coming to pick a fight. They're coming to wipe them out. That's the goal, and they have the ability to do it, humanly speaking. So we're not surprised by what we read in verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. Fear seems like an appropriate response. Now, the question is, what will he do now that he's afraid? Will, will he be like David, his great-great-great-grandfather, who found himself in a scary, desperate, helpless, impossible situation, seized by the Philistines, unsure what to do, when he said in Psalm 56, verse 3, When I am afraid, though, I put my trust in you. In, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? David doesn't say, I'm not afraid, I'm scared. No, he says, I am afraid. But I trust you, God. Will this be Jehoshaphat's response? Well, we read on. And Jehoshaphat was afraid and 
set his face to seek the Lord. And proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Doesn't say Jehoshaphat was afraid and he panicked. That would have been the natural response, wouldn't it? I mean, he, he, he received the CIA report and we, we, would, we would understand if he said um, immediately, call my generals now. Get everybody get together. Get the, get the forces mobilized, the army mobilized. We, we don't have a second to waste. And then after all the troops are mustered and everybody's out and dressed for battle, okay, if we, if we have any time left, okay, priest, can you say a quick prayer for us as we go out to battle? That's not it. We could kind of expect that. That's probably be a lot of us. It's not what he does. Or maybe we expect Jehoshaphat to react with anger to God. The situation. Why do I say that? Because notice verse 1 of chapter 19. It begins with this little prepositional phrase of chapter 20, excuse me. This little prepositional phrase, after this. After this, the wheels come off. After what? Well, we don't, we don't have time to look in, in detail at chapter 19, but just trust me, there were all of these incredible reforms that Jehoshaphat brought for the nation in chapter 19, and he's bringing the nation back to the Lord, to fear the Lord, to, to, to deal justly, and to, to walk in righteousness. And so he's, he's called the nation back to the Lord, and they're putting measures in place to, to show that that's actually happening. And so it would have been easy for him to say, now, God, what are you doing? I mean, I've tried to call the people, God, your people back to you to fear you, to love you, to put away anything, uh, any idols that they might trust in because you are the only one worthy of trust. No, no how does this fit? And, and now this, I don't, I don't deserve this kind of treatment. Uh, we, we could kind of expect that. We would understand that. Another natural reaction might have been for Jehoshaphat to trust in his army. Second Chronicles 17, we, we see that he does have a strong, well-organized military. They're equipped for battle. I'm, I would still say they're, 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 they're not as strong as the forces coming at him, but it was, a, it was a strong force. It would have been easy for him to trust in his preparedness, trust in his military. But instead, he publicly admits his lack of strength and he cries out to God. As his only help in this crisis. He calls a prayer meeting. A national prayer meeting really. And don't miss the significance of this. This is ancient Near East kings were a proud lot. They, they, they had an image to maintain. I mean this isn't like. It's not true today. With our rulers. But they had to be tough. They had to inspire confidence in their ability to lead. What kind of leader gets in front of his people and says. I'm afraid. I'm, I'm, I'm scared because we are helpless against our enemy. This isn't, this isn't a good political move on Jehoshaphat's part. There could have been some other leader ready to take, take the lead of the nation and could have come and taken him out. But this is exactly what he does. He admits his fear. He cries out to God. He calls on the nation to fast and to pray. Look at, look at his public admission of weakness in his prayer. Verse 12, Van ended with this verse. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Wouldn't it have been better to pray that in private? Pray that in private and then stand before the people and say, uh, folks, we, we are in a little bit of trouble here. Um... 
But don't worry, we, we're ready for whatever comes. Our, our military is going to protect us. Pray for our troops as they go out to defend our land from these intruders. But politics, public image, that seems to be the last thing from Jehoshaphat's mind. He knows he's in deep trouble if God doesn't answer and come through. He knows that they can't, but God can So he openly admits his weakness and utter dependence, and he calls upon the Lord in prayer. I would just say, again, making a touch point with what Van was sharing earlier, our, our, our church's five-year vision, and as we're talking about that and the four years that remain in that, my, my job, our job, is not to eliminate all, all uh, obstacles by perfect planning. This is a new thing for us, and we're learning along the way, and and pretty much everything we're doing is by volunteer help. So I hope you're not comparing this to your, you know, big business organization, the way the vision planning happens there, because we're, 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 this is a volunteer effort. But it's, it's, our job is not to inspire confidence in, in our leadership ability of, of this process. It's that if that's what you're waiting for, uh, you're going to be disappointed. If the future of this church is dependent upon any leader or leaders, then we are, we are in trouble. Um, my job, our job, is to admit our weakness. It's, it's to own our dependence upon God. And to help us own that together. It's to lead us to seek the Lord. To put our eyes upon Him. And ask Him for help. Not passive, we don't become passive do-nothings where we just kind of sit back and see, let go and let God. That's not the point, but active God-seekers. And, and, and so to, to, help, to help us be more and more comfortable in the clothes of we can't, but God can. That's what we want as a church. We want to be like Josh Vedden. Set his face to seek the Lord. Set his face. That's showing resolve, determination. This, this is what, this is what's important. This is everything else I'm pushing aside. I'm going, I'm setting my face. My, my focus is on this. To seek the Lord. That word seek, it's a graphic word. It's to trample underfoot. It's to, it's to beat a well-worn path to God. Josh Vedden's saying this, this is top priority. It's, it's, it's going to God. Seeking help from Him. That needs to be our posture as a church. Not just with Vision 2020, but in anything we do. In any, any of our efforts. And, and notice how he prays. He prays, it's a very God-centered prayer. First, he starts by remembering who God is. His transcendence, His unstoppable power. Verse 5, And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are You not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. So he acknowledges the transcendence of God, the unstoppable power of God. That's the first thing that we see. So it's this God-centered, large view, a prayer that acknowledges the greatness of our God. We were singing about even this morning. And he recalls the promises and works of God. Did not, verse 7, did not our God drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? He's saying the nation is God's. He, he placed it in the land. 
And verse 8, and, and they live and they have lived in it and have built for you in, in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, though sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. He's, he's, he's recalling a, 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 a something that happened in... Uh, when Solomon dedicated the temple, there were these promises that were made to Solomon regarding the temple. And in a time of trial, God would hear his people if they cried out from the temple. And he knows this because Scripture has testified to it. You see the, the quotation marks there. This is, a, this is a quote from Scripture. This is something that God has spoken in the past. And so it's God-centered prayer. It's Scripture-soaked prayer. He's rehearsing what God has already said. There's no better fuel for us to, to go to God and to speak to God and to ask help for God than how God has spoken to us in His Word. And, and we turn His Word back to Him in prayer. But it's also simple prayer. It's simple. There's one complaint. Verse 10. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. He's not telling God something he doesn't already know, like God's away on vacation and say, God, while you're away, I just want you to know these armies came against us. Just letting you know. He knows God understands the situation, but he's just admitting, he's making that to the Lord, known to the Lord. There's one request, verse 12. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? And then one confession, for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We can get all tied up in knots when it comes to, to prayer and thinking about prayer. We look at externals, the form, the, 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 the wording, the length, the posture, eyes open, eyes closed, and, and all those, the phraseology, all that stuff. But God sees our hearts when he hears our words. He's looking for sincerity and honesty and, and faith and humility. He's not a genie that has to be coaxed out of his lamp with some special formula. And we've got to get the words just right. So even as looking at this prayer, it's not, okay, well, this, next time I pray, I've got I to gotta do it in this order and, and say these things and remind God of these promises. That's not it. But he, he's our loving Father. He wants us to call upon him for help. But this, this does, it sets a good example for us. It's not a long, complicated prayer, but it's a prayer that God, in His providence, has saved the nation. Is saved the nation. I, 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 pray, I pray that we would be a church that commits to, for the long haul, seek God at all times, but particularly when desperate times strike. When the circumstances seem overwhelming, when the mission seems impossible, that we would, we would put our eyes upon the Lord. Well, the answer to Jehoshaphat's prayer, it's not long in coming. Verse 13, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. What a, what a scene. And again, but remember the context. Don't picture you know, this happy occasion, you know, fathers and children running around and wives and everybody smiling. No, they are, they are about to be uh, annihilated. They gather and they're trusting God. And verse 14, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph. 
in the midst of the assembly. Then he, and he said, listen, all Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours, but God's. How do you think that sounded to Jehoshaphat's ears? He goes on, tomorrow go against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness at Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. In the valley of blessing, the war is waged first with weakness. With weakness. We fight out of weakness, dependent upon God's strength. We believe and we live like it's not by might, not by power, but God, by God's Spirit. That's how, we, that's how we, we have to live and think. Great things happen when we realize our powerless condition apart from God. If you, if you feel like Jehoshaphat this morning, individually, collectively, as a church, we have no power to face this great army. Then don't despair. That's not the worst place to be. God loves to intervene with power on behalf of powerless people. He wants us to boast in our weakness that the power of Christ might rest on us. 2 Corinthians 12.9 And listen to this. Christian growth or sanctification it could be said that it's really the process of continually breaking our false security. Let me say it again. Sanctification is the process of continually breaking our false security. God does it slowly by stripping away those things in which we trust. Because unbelief is really at the heart of all sin. It's the root of all sin. We have idols of the heart that we manufacture and it just leads to all kinds of ramifications. But God, God slowly takes those things away in which we trust other than Him. And, and they're not necessarily evil things. They're, they could be good things, but we trust them instead of God. Our health, our some relationships, money, career, friends, plans, dreams, family, um, position, um, reputation. And He does that not to destroy us. Not because He doesn't love us or care about us. He does it to take away everything else so that we have nowhere to go but Him. We don't know what to do. This is where He's bringing Jehoshaphat and Judah. We, we do not know what to do. But our eyes are on You, Lord. And that's where God wants you to be. That's where God wants our church to be. That's ground zero for the Christian life. He will do whatever it takes to bring us that point because, again, He loves us so much. He wants to break us of that can-do attitude, purge from us that, that, that 
false security that we hold on to. I can take it. Don't worry. I've, I can handle it. I've got it under control. He wants us to believe and confess. We can't. We can't. But God can. And so in the valley of blessing, war is waged with weakness. Secondly, war is waged with worship. With worship. Worship is our response to God as we turn to Him in our helplessness. As we, as we see our weakness, we see God's strength more clearly and we worship Him. And so the answer to prayer, the, the, this, this answer to prayer that the prophet gives and, and this promise given, that's one thing to, to hear that. It's another thing to believe it and to obey it, isn't it? And we, we know a lot of truth. We know a lot of God's promises. But do we, do we really believe it? Do we really walk in light of them? Those are two different things. But this is exactly what they do. Verse 20, And they arose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe His prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise Him in holy attire as they went before the army. Did you get that? Went before the army. And say, give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. That's a strange battle formation. That's one of the... Uh, am I right, Ed? That's the weirdest battle formation. Andrew, looking at my military guys down here. That's a weird one. Here's the army of Judah, thousands of men armed for battle, and who's in front? Not the scouts, not the archers, not the swordsmen, not the infantry, the choir. That's who's leading the way. Can you imagine being one of those singers? Honestly, think about this. They're staking their very lives on the truthfulness of that word from God through the prophet. This is crazy faith. Marching unarmed in front of the army, uh, singing praises to God against this powerful, powerful coalition that's armed to the teeth, ready to annihilate them. They'll either be slaughtered, or God will come through. Only options. And it's a strange scene. I mean, you read any military history, or uh, and you hear you you read the accounts of soldiers talking about that that eerie silence that takes place before a battle. And and this tense silence, like the whole world just stops before that first charge, before the first shots fired. You have men in that silent moment gathering their thoughts, saying prayers, preparing to die. But not for Judah. <laughs> they're loud. They're singing songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And, and they lose all element of surprise. Again, something any military strategist would say is, is most important. Even a smaller army and, and um, undersized and an underprepared army, if they, if, they have, if they can keep surprise, that element of surprise, they can actually rock the enemy back on their heels and get an advantage. But, but not so with Judah. You can hear them coming from miles away. This thundering noise as they're, as they're going out over and over, singing loudly, give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love, His hesed, that loyal covenant-keeping love. It endures forever. This strategy looks like it's suicidal. 
but it's successful. Now, precisely what happened isn't really clear. The Bible simply says, verse 22, that when they began to sing and praise, and note that timing, these specific, and now it's recorded. When they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judas, so that they were routed. Maybe God used the singing and the noise to confuse the enemies, and they turned on one another. Maybe God sent angels somehow into the battle, and that's, we see other places in Scripture where that happens. Maybe he just kind of caused them to fall in their own traps and they start attacking one another. But we don't know. But once the killing started, it didn't stop. Verse 23, For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. (laughs) Meanwhile, Judah, not having a clue that this is going on, is marching Singing, give thanks to the Lord for steadfast love, endures forever, choir leading the way, soldiers behind, marching out with the promise of God, trusting that. And when they get to this high place overlooking the battlefield, all they see is dead bodies. Stiff corpses drying in that hot desert wind. Verse 24, when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness. They looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. Dead bodies as far as the eye could see. Thousands and thousands and thousands of soldiers dead. And the Bible is very specific on this point. No one escaped. (laughs) Think about that. Not one single survivor. Now, my little brain starts, how is that even possible? (laughs) I mean, just like the last this guy's mortally wounded. He's about to die, and he jabs the sword one more time and kills the last guy, and then he dies. I, I don't know, but God did this. Not one survivor. Every man who went out to fight that day died. It's not that the army was crippled. This vast, formidable coalition army was gone. Judah won the battle, and they never even fought. Never shot an arrow. Never, never threw a spear, never drew a sword. They just sang, <laughs> marched and sang. In some translations, and one I won't name, and if you're using it, that's great. It's a fine translation. But I was consulting different translations and reading through it, this passage in different translations. And I noticed the heading above chapter 20 in one translation, a popular translation, says something like, Jehoshaphat defeats Moab and Ammon. And I'm thinking, What? That's a, that's a bad heading that the editors put in there. Jehoshaphat didn't defeat anybody. He didn't break a sweat. He didn't lift a finger. He didn't get his uniform dirty. He didn't lose one single soldier. He didn't do anything. No general in the history of military uh, war in, uh, warfare has ever had it easier. The entire battle was over before he even got to the battlefield. The battle was not Jehoshaphat's. It was not Judah's. It was God's. And, and their job was simply to acknowledge their weakness and to herald God's worship. That's, that's what they were to do. And God, and they got to see the salvation of the Lord. And, and, and that's not accidental. They, God didn't just say, you just sit back, stay back, stay in the city. I got this. 
He says, march, go out there, singing, choir leading the way, prepare for battle, but see the salvation of the Lord. I want you to see this. Not one soldier escaped. Total victory, and it was all God's doing. There's this visual picture for God's people to get. Let's see how it ends. Verse 25, when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which I read precious things, and I'm like, there's jewelry. I just can't conceive of a soldier going out to battle and think, man, I've got to get the nice stuff. I want to take the nice, I don't know. I'm just... But they came and they took for themselves until they could carry no more. There were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. And in verse 26, And on the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Baraka. For there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of that place has been called the valley of Baraka to this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord, and the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when, when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. <laughs> I mean, you see all this worship. They, they worship before the crisis. They worship during the crisis. They worship after the crisis. The time is always right to worship the Lord. And not just in the quiet time, not just in the tranquil time, not just after the victory, but even in the desperate times. God says, seek me, worship me. I'm worthy. This is why I have a book, like, book of Psalms and talk about it's worship for every season of the soul. No matter what's going on in your life, there's a, there's, a, there's a way in which we worship, exalt the Lord, and bless the Lord. And, it's not, and, and what we see is, we say warfare is waged with worship. It's not that worship is just preparation for the strategy. It is the strategy. It's not the prelude to the battle. It is the battle. <laughs> the battle that's been going on since the fall in Genesis chapter 3 is one of worship. God deserves glory from everything that He's made. And, and man, when we fell, we, 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 we've exchanged the glory of God for, the, for incorruptible images made, in, made in, after His likeness. And, and we've, we've robbed God of His glory. And, and so, when we worship God, we're doing battle. The world, the flesh, the devil, they all take a blow every time we worship God. I don't just mean singing songs, but when we pray out of, a, out of our neediness, when we sing out of joy, when we give out of gratitude, any way we worship God, we're, we're, deal, we're doing battle, church. We're doing battle. I know our time is almost up. We are not meeting tonight. You get to watch the Super Bowl. So give me five minutes, okay? And then we'll be done. I want to bring it to our context. This is important for us, I think. I've been praying a lot about this this week. As I think about this church, as I think about our mission, brothers and sisters, I'm overwhelmed. It, it is overwhelming. I mean, we, we can see the vision statement, and you guys you can put it back up there again, Luke, and our stated ongoing mission to glorify God by making disciples of Christ at home and abroad. It's not hard to say. 
exactly. It's not hard to memorize. Say we, we, We're basically saying we exist to spread God's fame by making and growing disciples of Christ everywhere. That is big. That's an impossible task. If that, but the, if that ever stops pulsating through our corporate veins as a church, if that mission ever ceases, then we have lost sight of who we are and what we're about, and we might as well just cease to matter as a church. Oswald Smith said this many years ago, any church that is not seriously involved in helping fulfill the Great Commission has forfeited its biblical right to exist. And I'm not saying we have. I'm, this is not a scold, believe me, brothers and sisters. But this is an encouragement to us. This is, this is what we're to be about. And that is a high calling. That is an impossible task. It's not a mission we made up. It's given by Christ Himself. You know the passages, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore make disciples of all nations. I'm summarizing. Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Luke 24. Every gospel account, you have a version of the Great Commission. Luke 24, 46 and 47. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. In John 20, 21, as the Father sent me, so I sin you. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the mission of the church is to tell all 7 billion people on planet earth about Jesus Christ and His gospel and to make disciples of every people group around the world. It's not a big deal, right? It's an impossible task. Many of those 7 billion people are in extremely remote places. About half of those have no realistic opportunity to hear the gospel at this time. Almost 12,000 people, ethnic groups in our world, and about, about two-thirds of those have less than a 2% evangelical Christian presence. And that's generous. Many of these people groups have zero missionaries and zero mission organizations working with them. Many of these people groups are violently resistant to the gospel. And they're ready to harm those who would bring the message of the gospel to them. There are cultural barriers, there are language barriers, there are political barriers, there are distance barriers, there are literacy barriers. So, but listen, I'm not just paralyzed by the thought of that need, the nations. I'm frozen when I think about our community here. I see the, the lostness of this neighborhood even. And I love this community. I do. But I, I just, just, just Corinth Road and all the 600 or so homes that are off of here and the 2,400 or so souls that are right here in this community. Let's just say 15% or 20% are believers. That's, again, very generous. But there's hundreds and hundreds of souls and then you expand that tens of thousands more within a five-mile radius, and we go beyond that to many of the areas that you live in your neighborhoods and workplaces and schools. And what can we do about the lostness in the world? 
What can we do about the lostness in this community right here? On our own, we can do nothing. The reality is, I can't and you can't make one single disciple on our own. I can't make one of my own children born again. I couldn't make myself born again. I can't, let alone make a neighbor, let alone make hundreds or thousands right around us born again, let alone reach millions or billions with the gospel of Christ. So what in the world are we to do? We just give up? No. And we can't become frozen in apathy, just kind of give lip service to this mission and, and we get excited every once in a while, but then on the inside we're thinking, what's the point? No. We can't become ingrown and just focus on our needs and our, our wants as a group and just kind of hang on and be good until heaven. That's not, that's not an adequate response. What can we do? Can you relate to Jehoshaphat's prayer? We do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. We don't need a pep rally to motivate us to live on mission like this. I know there's all the Falcons hoopla and I'm excited with it. And I know they had the big pep rally at City Hall. And I couldn't help but think back to like high school pep rallies when I was picturing what was going on at City Hall. I didn't see any of the footage. But, you know, cheerleaders, you can do it. Yes, you can. You know, we can't lose and all that kind of stuff. Well, I can tell you in my high school, we could lose. <laughs> and we couldn't do it. I don't, whatever it was and whatever doing involved, we, we missed it because we lost a lot. Um, I mean, that's not sufficient to motivate us to exhaust our lives and to spend our lives making disciples of Christ. We don't need a gimmick. We don't need a strategy. We don't need, we don't need a motivational speaker. We need to turn to the Lord. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This, this impossible mission is for every single one of us. We all collectively need to own our weakness and, and so that we depend upon the Lord. We collectively need to, to herald God's worship so that it's His fame that spreads. We all collectively need to, to march toward the battle so that we can see the salvation of the Lord. Again, it's not passivity. The battle was the Lord's for Judah, but God still called them to go and march and see it. Sing. Salvation is of the Lord, but God still calls us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. So we've we, we got to be like those singers. We've got to have this crazy confidence in the promises of God and the truthfulness of His Word and, and trusting His power, and we just march Singing, proclaiming Christ. We walk across the street. We're marching. We're not there, not there with swords. We're, we're there with a voice. And we go ahead of the soldiers. And we go and we walk across the street. We invite a neighbor to dinner. We walk around our cubicle and, and, and go to the break room and, and talk. And cross the aisle in your classroom and the, the next row of desks. Not during class, but... Afterwards, before, we, we go, we, you get a passport, you, 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 you give sacrificially, you pray diligently, you join the gospel outreach team, you, you take part in the evangelism training, you, you, you get involved in an outreach ministry in our community, and then you just see God accomplish His impossible task. This is what, it's what God has called us to. So my brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm praying 
And we are praying, and I, I trust that you will pray with me and with us, that we will feel our weakness and inability like never before as a church. Not to discourage us, but to fill us with hope. Greater confidence in God, that our view of God would grow. And that we'll fix our eyes on the Lord, cry out to Him for help. And as we march into the, this battle for souls, worshiping and proclaiming Jesus Christ, that we might see the salvation of the Lord. God, God help us. Let's pray. Father, we... We want to be a church that, in a sense, stands in the valley of Baraka, the valley of blessing, and blesses you, having seen you work powerfully. The battle is not ours, it's yours, God. And therefore, you get all the glory for it. And yet you call us to trust you, to believe your promises, to believe your word, to march, to use our voices to herald your name, and your loving kindness. And so God, may we, may we be ready as a church to do just that. But we don't trust in chariots or horses or strategic plans. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. And we say, the victory, the battle is yours and the victory is yours, Lord. Use us, God, however you will. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.